Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. The Bowery Boys, episode 152, Bellevue Hospital. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hey there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. For today's topic, we are checking ourselves into Bellevue Hospital. Right, and you know, that does sound kind of gloomy and probably carries a really mysterious and almost spooky connotation to it, but that hasn't always been the case, and it really doesn't deserve this reputation. So of course, it's a world-class hospital today, and has been so for quite a long time, but it served a lot of more unusual, less conventional roles in its history. There are also a number of notable firsts that happened at Bellevue Hospital, things that we take for granted today in healthcare and and great medical discoveries that took place there as well. And we'll also get to, of course, the reason that a lot of people in comic books and TV and film know Bellevue, which is, of course, the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. Right, which is, I think, what most people think about when, when you even say Bellevue. But there's so much more. In fact, this will take us from the 1730s all the way up to literally just a few months ago. Greg, I'm even going to take us back further than the 1730s, <laughs> because in order to understand from whence Bellevue came, we have to understand what in the world healthcare was like, even in pre-British New York. Well, I guess I'll just have to be patient for that, oh. I suppose. The first of perhaps a few inappropriate puns for this one. So join us as we visit the history of Bellevue Hospital. So that was a little section from someone who has stayed in Bellevue, the jazz performer Charlie Mingus, with his song inspired by Bellevue, if you if you will, called Lock 'em Up, Hellview of Bellevue. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to maybe why he would have had such a negative opinion of Bellevue. So Bellevue Hospital is located in Manhattan on First Avenue between 26th and 28th Street. But before we get up to this right. spot... And that's, that's today's Bellevue Hospital. That's today's Bellevue Hospital. Tom, let's go all the way back to the beginnings of New York history and discuss a little bit how people took care of their ills back in the day. Well, back in the Dutch period, 
period. If we go back to the 1600s, you might recall that it was the West India Company and a certain Peter Stuyvesant who were in charge Mm -hmm. uh, when New York was New Amsterdam. Now, the company that ran New York, the West India Company, decided that they would care for their sick. And so they even sent over midwives and comforters of the sick called Ziekentrusters, (laughs) who would sit, um, they were religious pastors, they would sit with uh, sick people, read them verses and help sort of nurture them spiritually. But they were were company workers. Right, they were paid for Mm -hmm. by the company town. And Stuyvesant, you know, knew that they probably needed to have a hospital, but it was so expensive to build the hospital. But when he realized that not having a hospital meant that, that slaves and other laborers would get sick, it was actually an inefficiency. So in 1658, New Amsterdam built the first hospital. In 1658, right? Yes, okay. and that was not Bellevue. During British New York, as the city was growing, so too was trade. You can imagine that along with trade, lots of ships coming in and out of the port, and mm-hmm. with them came diseases swept into the ports from other parts of the world. In an era where people didn't know how many diseases started, even you know, were unaware of the sort of bacteria and the viruses right. that carry these things. Right. It seems like constant outbreaks of fevers, smallpox. There was a, a three-month month smallpox fever breakout in 1702, in which 10%, about 570 people, 10% of the population died succumbing to the smallpox. So, and of course, who would succumb? Who were the most likely to be um, the victims of this? They were, of course, the city's poor, because people who had money and means would escape every time. And this is something I think we'll be talking about Mm -hmm. in this episode. Every time there is another outbreak, all the rich people would take off and go to the country houses or even stay with lodgers outside the city. Yeah, the city emptied out when plague times swung around. So who were the doctors then back in the city? Because we're talking very primitive procedures, very primitive well, medicine and surgeons. I, mean, I think, right, we would consider them, the practices primitive today. They were using kind of medieval techniques like bloodletting and purging and mm-hmm. things like that, things that you would not want to subject yourself to uh, today. <laughs> yeah. But of course, in a city like New York, you know, where there's an opportunity, there's always somebody stepping forward to fulfill that need. So the city had plenty of people who were willing to act as doctors. Um, Some of them were trained. (laughs) A few were even trained, okay? So in 1718, there were 20 listed surgeons and and two, quote, barber surgeons, where you could go for a shave and a little bit more. And so, a little bloodletting. So they could, you know, take off the beard and take out the appendix. Right, all at once. Because they had the knives. They had the sharp objects. They had right. the most sophisticated objects. So And the you know, chairs. You could go and sit down <laughs> and just be operated upon. And a lot of these barber surgeons and surgeons were also supplementing their incomes by selling remedies, quote-unquote, through various stores, sundry shops, the snake oil of the day, although some of it may have had legitimate uh, connections to health imported from Europe. And people paid for this out of their own pockets. There wasn't any health insurance, obviously, as we know it today. Although there was a sense that people's families and their churches would take care of people. I mean, that does make sense, especially back 
in these days when government is, you know, is shall we say limited, very limited. But what if you, of course, didn't have a family? And what if you weren't part of a church? Right. Well, you were probably going to be part of a church, otherwise you'd be chased out of town. <laughs> but if you were living without any family in town, they died. If you had just moved to the city. So clearly there are a few holes in the system here. Mm-hmm. And so this is the point in the story where the almshouse comes to play. This is a, a poor house. The idea of a centralized place that was run by the city or funded by private or public funds, that was a sort of catch-all for all the needs of the poor. So in 1736, they erected a public workhouse and house of correction of the city of New York, which was erected around uh, today's City Hall Park, the northern edge of that park. It was a two-story building. It was sort of far from the city's action at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was a trifecta of institutions, three in one. It was an almshouse, it was a workhouse, and it was a house of correction, all in one. So basically taking all of the city's undesirables and putting them off on the edge of town. Many of these people were mixed together as well. There wasn't necessarily a clear distinction, which led to probably some less than ideal circumstances. Where you had legitimately sick people next to people who may have had mental troubles, next to just outright criminals, right next to just people who were poor. Right. Now, you just said where you had people who were sick. Mm -hmm. Now, the infirmary has not yet opened. Oh, okay. But, of course, some of these people would be sick, Mm -hmm. right? They were among the city's poorest, some of its oldest, in some of its worst situations. So, that same year, they opened in 1736 an infirmary on the second floor Mm. of this building. And we're talking about a small operation here. This was one room with six beds. uh, (laughs) They only had one doctor. They quickly realized that they needed more space. Um, More people were checking in. They had to hire another assistant. So there were two doctors who were tending to the people. But the point to get across here in today's podcast about Bellevue Hospital is that it's this building, the second floor of this almshouse that opened in 1836, to which Bellevue traces its history. The roots begin here on these very first six beds. So are you telling me then, in the 18th century here in New York, that this was the only place that you were that if you were sick you would go to? I mean, obviously the wealthier New Yorkers of the time probably mm-hmm. went somewhere else or had people visit their houses, I suppose. Right. Well, that's the key distinction here is that people would receive treatment from these 20 uh, surgeons and the two barber surgeons uh, who would make house calls, but you weren't necessarily going to a hospital. And, and that was the case up until 1771 when New York got its first hospital, the New York Hospital, which was established by King George III of England. So it's funny because if you look up the history of hospitals in New York City, Bellevue, which has its genesis here on the second floor from of the almshouse right. in 1736, claims to be the city's oldest hospital. Mm-hmm. So, too, does this New York hospital, which was uh, started in 1771 because it was called, literally, a oh, hospital. Right. By the way, the New York hospital would then later on, you know, through mergers and affiliations and such, become today's Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Mm. The 1770s, by the way, that's a very good decade 
for the city to open a hospital since, of course, there would be a great number of wounded people who come through New York because of the Revolutionary War and the British occupation of New York in 1776. Well, let me take us to maybe something slightly, a slightly more pleasant area of New York, although going there in a very unpleasant fashion. For the seeds of Bellevue, which has started here at the Almshouse, uh, you know, where today's City Hall is today, would move up to the present location of Bellevue due to a disturbing epidemic or series of epidemics that swept through New York in the 1790s. That, of course, would be yellow fever. You know, today we know all about yellow fever, that it's transmitted by mosquito, but it wasn't until the 20th century that there was even an effective vaccine. Back in the 1790s, they had no clue what started it, and they had no cure for it. They call it yellow fever because it attacks its victim. So a victim gets bitten by this mosquito. They There's all sorts of different symptoms like high fever, but it, can, it affects the liver and then can turn patients very jaundiced. So it would literally be a reflection of their skin tone mm. happened here. Now keep in mind that the poor Alms house here is but a few modern city blocks away from the shoreline of Collect Pond, which of course had thousands of, mis- of disease-ridden right. mosquitoes. Just breeding them. So a series of epidemics hit here in the 1790s. The biggest epidemic actually hit Philadelphia very severely in 1793. You know, I mean, Philadelphia was the seat of national government. George Washington and the Congress had to flee the city mm. because of this terrible epidemic. It did, of course, come to New York as well. Although I have to say, like, they, had, they would have people guarding the ports in 1793 to prevent ships and people from coming from Philadelphia. Wow. So the city, even at that time, was quarantining itself from this other major city. One result, as you alluded to earlier, is that then during the summer, people with some sorts of means, and even those without, escaped the city. And by escaping the city, we're talking about just that area from Brooklyn Bridge below today. Uh, So they would go away to such faraway villages as Greenwich Village and Bloomingdale and Bowery Village, for instance. Although some would go much further up the Hudson, wouldn't they? They would even escape over to Brooklyn. In fact, that was uh, that was sort of the beginning of Brooklyn Heights, where people moving over there thinking that they had shelter and safety over on that side from the dirty city. So what happened when somebody actually did catch yellow fever? Were they kept in the second floor of the almshouse? Well, they, they quickly realized they, they couldn't do that. They needed to put them somewhere isolated. Um, You know, they didn't abandon these people, but they needed to be far away from the city and far away even from all these little villages. So one idea they had was to actually inhabit one of these old mansions uh, that existed up and down Manhattan. And we've talked about these fine mansions in the past, and we live with the names of some of them today. For instance, a certain Chelsea Manor Mm -hmm. gives the name of Chelsea today. But the city planners identified one particular house of interest, and it was a home of a man named Lindley Murray. It's, of course, no surprise, in the area of today's Murray Hill area, Lindley's parents, Robert and Mary Murray, we've mentioned them actually in a prior podcast uh, during the Revolutionary War when George Washington and the Continental Army were escaping out of Manhattan. There was that final legend of General Howe and the British troops landing around the home of Robert and Mary Murray. And she, she and her lovely daughters delaying the troops ah, so that right, George Washington could escape. Now, 
Lindley was Mary's son, and he had another home very nearby there, right along the waterfront in the bay famously known as Kipps Bay, which was named for an old Dutch merchant by the name of Jacobus Hendrickson Kip. This, this Kip built the original home that then Murray rebuilt, Lindley Murray rebuilt. It's at First Avenue between 25th and 28th Street was his property. Um, built it in 1783. Before, obviously, there were any streets up there. This uh, is sure, decades absolutely. before the commissioner's plan. And it was a lovely, lovely home on the waterfront. It was, quote, preeminently distinguished for its grateful fruits, the plum, the peach, the pear, and the apple, and for its classic culture of the Rosa Sea which is the Latin name for, of course, the Rose family. So it was a place overabundant with fruit trees and roses. But 10 years later, in 1793, as the yellow fever epidemic swept through, Lindley was no longer here. He had moved to London, so through an intermediary, he sold his house here to the city. And they moved the sick patients here, and so it became the quarantine station for yellow fever in the city for several years afterwards, whenever they needed it. And so they didn't build another structure. They were moving literally into Lindley's house. That's the amazing thing. And actually, a few institutions have done this over time. For instance, uh, in Brooklyn, the Long Island City Hospital, which was one of Brooklyn's first hospitals, did the very same thing. They just moved into a mansion. You just had all these big, empty houses uh, just clear stuff away and turn it into a hospital. So... Many of the original people who died of this yellow fever epidemic, by the way, were buried in what used to be New York's old potter's field, the site of today's Washington Square Park. And many of them are still there today. So during the very beginning of the 19th century, a great many important doctors swung through here. And this, you know, if, keep in mind, it's not quite yet a hospital. It's still it's right. a quarantine station, but it soon took on the name of the house. The name of the house that Murray called it was, of course, Bellevue. Two that would words. Be two words, meaning... Beautiful view. Luckily, with the, the, when the yellow fever kind of died out by the beginning of the 19th century, this was one of the causes of certain civic improvements, as we, and we've talked about many of them during this time. You know, everything from draining Collect Pond, because they knew that mm-hmm. people couldn't drink it and it was toxic water. These were the beginning of discussions of having clean water sent right. to the city, of course. So another one of these civic improvements they wanted to make is an official hospital. So in, actually in 1811, which I think is interesting, because that, of course, is the same year as the commissioner's plan, mm-hmm. which then made another important civic improvement to Manhattan, which is the creation of roads and avenues. In 1811 is when they decided that they needed a proper hospital. And so, of course, why not just take the old yellow fever hospital? Um, The city had the land already. It took a few years, but eventually the almshouse and all of those purposes that were in that old building then moved up here to Bellevue. The old almshouse down by City Hall Park, of course, a lot of other institutions sort of cleaned up the place, moved in. Some of those institutions being the birth of the New York Historical Society. And then another little quirky little museum called Scudder's American Museum. Uh, right. Which then later got bought by P.T. Barnum and became Barnum's American Museum in another location. But it was the same collection. We'll talk about Barnum again in the show. Oh, Barnum comes up again. Right, he does. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So on April 29th of 1816, the Bellevue Establishment, that's what they called it, the Bellevue Establishment, opened. It was a complex of buildings up at this new site that was walled into a 26-acre site looking out over the East River. Now, this was quite a complex. It wasn't just the almshouse. It wasn't just the hospital, although those were both important parts of this entire establishment. There was also a penitentiary, a school, a morgue, a bakehouse, a wash house, a soap factory, a greenhouse, an ice house, a shop for carpenters and blacksmiths, and the quarantine, which you already discussed, Mm -hmm. which they called uh, the, quote, pest house. That's a lot going on on such a little patch of land here. Really, they had something for everyone. For example, if you if you had caught a contagious disease... You could go to the pest house right. in Bellevue. If you were sick with uh, just a regular old illness or had a chronic condition of some sort... To uh, one of the wards in the hospital. That's right. If you were incapable of paying your bills, or if you were old... Well, that you went to the almshouse. Good. If you were sick with something that we would call morally reprehensible, like perhaps you had caught something that you were ashamed of. Something ashamed of? What are you? I'm blushing. Right. Well, right. Morally reprehensible, you would be sent to the almshouse as well, but you would be put to hard labor. Oh. So this almshouse, because we were sending older people, elderly, sick people, and also people who were vagrants who were who had caught something said there were lots of different people there it was the largest building in the in the entire city a three-story stone structure that stretched 325 feet long with wings at both ends so really a dominant site on the skyline it was really one of the early parts of the skyline absolutely it held 1500 inmates um, at a time when it was running at capacity, and it cost a lot of money to run, about a tenth of the city's budget. It's encouraging here to finally see New York deciding it wants to be a world-class city, deciding that it's going to fund this important building you know, to its citizens, and, but it seems to be providing a few too many functions <laughs> from our modern sensibility. Well, that was just the almshouse, because behind the almshouse was a three-story penitentiary, and that's where you sent... 
those convicted of petty crimes like theft, assault, fraud, and people were held here for up to three years. So it was almost like a Rikers Island, like the entire purpose of that island into one building. People who were convicted of something more serious, like robbery or burglary, were sent over to Newgate Prison, which would actually close in 1828 after horrific conditions, and those prisoners were sent off to Sing Sing. Mm. Bellevue, on top of everything else, is now one part of the prison system in New York. Right, because that's how it worked back then. And I haven't even mentioned that there was also the Bellevue Hospital building in this complex of places, which took on more and more patients with every passing health crisis and mm-hmm. fever breakout that, that would take place. One of the reasons it was also taking on so many people is because the city's other hospital, remember the New York hospital, mm-hmm. refused to take on patients with conditions that they that seem dangerous or morally reprehensible mm. so people who would catch something really dangerous in, in one of these outbreaks would be sent to bellevue because the new york hospital wouldn't treat them so generally speaking a destination for the unwanted other people who were not wanted were very poor people convicted of vagrancy that is simply being poor begging, hanging around, and also women convicted of prostitution. These types of people were deemed bad for businesses around town because they sort of discouraged commerce on the street. They just got in the way of things. So these people were locked up in the penitentiary Mm -hmm. and and kept there and, and forced to do labor Although they had shorter sentences than the people actually convicted of those other crimes. Mm-hmm. They would only stay for about six months. In this charming Bellevue. Right. Mm-hmm. Where part of the labor, I mean, they could be taught certain things like farming techniques or weaving and stitching. And some of them were making nails. While others would be put on the dreaded stepping mill which was a 20-foot-long kind of treadmill circular wheel that 16 people could line up on and walk trudging along to turn this giant wheel. And they'd, they'd take eight-minute shifts before another 16 people would get up there and you had guards watching them sort of groan away, making this thing move with their feet. I mean, I often feel sometimes when I live in New York that I'm a little mouse on a little wheel, but now you're saying there was a literal version of this 200 years ago. With 16 men lined up, trudging away at it. So, I mean, I'm keeping like a checklist here. There's like, so there's eight or nine different functions here Mm. that are happening right right here at this area of Manhattan. I mean, is there anything I'm missing? Is there like a... Well, you're missing the execution ground. So, they also killed people here. Well, so, yes, but relatively humanely. Let me explain that. Mm -hmm. Because up until this point, executions had been high theater. They had Mm -hmm. been public displays. You know, they were... They were sort of spectacle, morality play. They were these big events where people would gather, and usually the accused, the um, soon-to-be-executed, would be brought out and would say something to the crowd about how they were uh, repentant. This was, in a way, religious and civic spectacle. Macabre theater. Right. But unfortunately, this also led to lots of dangerous situations. There were rowdy crowds, often acting in ways that were counter right to this morality that was supposed to be on display there were also pickpockets working the crowds there were just big groups of people maybe acting in lewd manners shouting drunk 
this is what was happening okay. at these public institutions. Mm-hmm. Well, enough was enough, and so this, the city decided that they needed to come up with a, a more humane, more private way for executions to be handled. So they came up with a system of executing people on the grounds of the Bellevue establishment, and it called for 12 citizens to be present as witnesses, but no more. Now, naturally, for an institution that has to do so many things with the population in an era where filth and disease can so easily crawl in, naturally, this was an unpleasant place to to be for many people and a very unpleasant place to work. In fact, during a typhus outbreak, a group of nurses actually escaped It was almost overrunning the pest house and the hospital. As I read, quote, the whole concern was filled with typhus from top to bottom. The patients were lying in their filthy blankets, destitute of sheets and pillowcases. And in some chronic cases, they had not had a change for three months. Mm. There were cholera outbreaks that came through here, like typhus, as I said, just making it all the more horrible is the fact that around 1840, the population of New York explodes, which triples the population in just a couple decades. Of course, that moves the city upwards. So not only are they, is it packed with people, but now they're moving northwards. And so all of a sudden, this Bellevue, which was all sorts of bucolic and distant and isolated, is no longer isolated. And also the people who were moving here were among the world's poorest, those who didn't have the social uh, safety net. And fit all the qualifications of the services here that Bellevue provided. By the 1850s, they were serving up to 5,000 patients a year, and of course, mostly poor, and, and really mostly Irish, actually. Because of this reputation, as you mentioned, only the most sickly, the worst cases, were sent here from those other institutions that began sprouting up in the city. As a result, they had the highest death toll of any health service in New York, and they were renowned for that, unfortunately. It was the place where you sent people to die. So there was something mm. mournful even in the city of just the reputation of Bellevue at this time. And of course, not helping matters were the notorious rat and lice infestations that often occurred here. <sighs> because of this move uptown, you couldn't necessarily have quarantines anymore because you're just surrounded by people anywhere. There's no place to properly isolate them. So the solution, of course, is that Blackwell's Island right. out there on the East River. For much of the 19th century, the scene of many of these uh, services that Bellevue once offered, for instance, the smallpox hospital that was uh, built in 1856, the building designed by James Renwick, the ruins are still standing on Roosevelt Island today. That was from 1856, and it relieved Bellevue of some of the pest house responsibilities. And Blackwell's also had a lunatic asylum out there as well, that some of these patients went out there. So, so did Bellevue hold on to a, any asylum? The almshouse left to, to Blackwell, the prison left to Blackwell's, um, the workhouse for the vagrants and the poor went out there. So basically what happens is by the 1860s, mm-hmm. it becomes a more streamlined actual hospital. hospital. It would still have a lot of sort of 
I would say, rather unusual responsibilities that we wouldn't necessarily think of a hospital. For instance, they still took care of the foundlings or abandoned children. So if, uh, if, a, if a child was found uh, with, no, with no parents or a baby mm-hmm. was abandoned somewhere, they sent them here to Bellevue. The situation got so dire when the population was so intensely crowded during the 1860s that Bellevue actually hired poor women from the almshouse at mm-hmm. Blackwell. They would bring them over to take care of the children, sometimes to nurse these abandoned wow. babies. Now, in 1853, a rather peculiar building was built here at Bellevue, the Dead House, um, what we would call perhaps a a morgue morgue today, but it was a little bit more than a morgue, actually. I have to say, the first floor attended to the dead would have the functions of a morgue, but the second floor was actually a little bit of a museum, pathological museum. In fact, this building was named after one of the doctors called the James D. Wood Pathological Museum, which featured, quote, some of the most rare, interesting, and unique specimens of anatomical dissections and pathological specimens found anywhere. Um, And this is sort of the era of the cabinet of curiosity, Mm -hmm. right? Now we're in the Civil War era, and it's incredible to think how involved Bellevue was. Sometimes you don't realize that these institutions were directly connected to the war in a couple means. For instance, of course, By the end of the war, over 60,000 wounded men would be treated here at Bellevue. It would be be shipped up by boat, let out right there at the pier, and then taken into Bellevue for care. But on another level, the war reduced the staff of Bellevue. So you had all of these additional patients, but many of the staff, many of the doctors and nurses were actually serving in the war effort, were actually outside of the city, were on the front lines. But one benefit did come from the Civil War, which I believe you'll talk about, and I'll get to in a second. But another interesting thing happened here in 1866. (laughs) In 1866, so so the year after the war, so they had this morgue, the Pathological Museum. Well, in 1866, it actually became the city morgue. So at that time, it had only served just the hospital's needs. So the people who had died at the hospital, things that were related to the hospital services. But in 1866, it began serving the entire city. Mm-hmm. I guess that makes sense because Bellevue was the city's hospital, right? This was run mm-hmm. by the city of New York and the Department of Health. And now it properly served the city in this rather grim capacity. I read from a city directory from like the 1870s. It said, quote, open at all hours for the reception of the unknown dead. Bodies kept for 72 hours, then buried in the city cemetery if unclaimed. Clothes are exhibited 30 days, and if not identified, are preserved for one year. So, of course, because of the they don't they didn't have the proper caring for dead bodies back then, obviously, they had to bury them immediately. But for family members who would only discover the passing of their loved one months later, could come and identify them based upon clothes clothing that were stored here in the first official city morgue. Now, falling back for a minute to the to the Civil War, mm-hmm. another person who was very important in the Civil War was Colonel Edward Dalton. He had served in the Civil War in the medical services. When he returned to Bellevue after the war was out, he applied some of the knowledge that he had gained about the transport of wounded soldiers, getting them quickly and efficiently off the battlefield and to places where they could be cared for. 
the knowledge that he gleaned from his Civil War experience, he applied to developing the first ambulance to be used in an American hospital. Wow. This was a obviously horse-drawn vehicle mm-hmm. weighing about six to 800 pounds. The wagon itself in the back had a slat of wood that could be removed to be hmm. used as a stretcher. And you could fill up, you know, fill up the back with all the supplies, sponges, bandages, and that kind of thing. The official instructions that came with the ambulance called for a quart of brandy to be kept underneath <laughs> the driver's seat. And the driver carried, this is, that, is kind of... Is that for the driver? Depends how traffic was, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Okay. Um, but the driver also could ring a gong. There was a gong in the front to smash, to get through traffic. So the first year that this went into practice in 1869, the ambulance served 1,401 calls in the first year. Wow, so how... It was a big success. So they would get word of some of something that happened, of a sick person or of some sort of an accident or something, and they would just send it out in the same way that they do today, except, with, right. except without a siren. It was a gong. A gong. Quite a gong show. There are many other innovations that took place in the 1870s and 1880s. I hate to just sort of list them like this. In, in 1867, the first cesarean was performed in the U.S. at Bellevue. In 1870, Dr. Stephen Smith created a separate division of the hospital to treat the mentally ill, and a few years later in 1879 would open a pavilion just to treat those who were suffering from insanity. What, pavilion? Right, a pavilion. I mean, we just use that word in such a different way today. When Um, talking about the Academy Award. From the insane pavilion to the Dorothy Chandler pavilion. Right. I think that it meant a wing of a building. Mm-hmm. And in 1873, the New York School for Nurses opened at Bellevue, and with the first nurses graduating two years later. That same year, in 1873, Bellevue opened the nation's first pediatric clinic, which was headed by doctors Abraham Jacoby and Joe Lewis Smith, who literally had written the book on pediatric medicine. So as you're seeing here, Bellevue was a place where lots of innovations and lots of firsts were taking place. It was still seen as a foremost place for medicine and for health and for science. And there was a lot of science happening there, partially due to big grants being given to Bellevue through philanthropists such as Andrew Carnegie, who gave $50,000 in 1884 to establish the Carnegie Lab uh, to study bacteriology. This was headed by a doctor named Dr. Herman Biggs, who made huge discoveries, big discoveries. Big ones, yes. Um, regarding the transmission of tuberculosis. In the 1890s, there, were, there was additional expansion. There was a new pavilion to treat alcoholism that opened in 1892. A few years later, McKim, Mead, and White would be hired in 1896 to design a brand new, a brand new master campus for Bellevue. And at around the same time, Bellevue actually merged with NYU to become the University and Bellevue Medical College. So this was a few years after, for instance, a Columbia University being built, which was also a McKim, Mead, and White pro- uh, project of right. all these sort of elaborate buildings. So we're talking now the Gilded Age of New York City. So it sounds like the hospital is not quite the grim place that um, it had been associated with early in the century. Things were looking up and even doing somersaults uh, and catapults in the air. In fact, in 1908, P.T. Barnum brought the Barnum and Bailey Circus to Bellevue Hospital to, to entertain the patients. 
they performed in the hospital. Yeah, they 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 performed in the courtyard of the of the main hospital. There were some beautiful balconies, three floors, tiered balconies. So it made a wonderful little wow. outdoor theater. And so there's a great photo. Maybe you can put it on the mm-hmm. blog. Of, um, I will look for it. Yes, of the circus coming to the hospital, and they would keep up those performances through the 1960s, when unfortunately those balconies were demolished. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned most of this campus, this new campus had been designed by McKim Mead and White, the premier architect firm that, of course, we have spoken about many, many times at the show. Right. What's interesting is the building that I think that people know the most, the one that's like most familiar, was built in 1931 and, in fact, was not McKim Mead and White, but by a sort of a little known architect by, named Charles Myers. Oh. Uh, maybe he's a relation. But you may not want to be associated for that building was the infamous Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. Um, this was a nine-story brick building of the Italian Renaissance and a menacing wall of iron fences that, of course, still exists on the building today. The building is cloaked in ivy and um, in, even was back in the day. At its opening, the interior of the building was also decorated in WPA murals, the work progress program Mm -hmm. inside the hospital. The murals were called materials of relaxation, right? So it seems like, oh, a place where we can just like have a a, a mental vacation and just relax, right? Well, sounds unlikely. Yes. So just the sort of haunted look of the building. I mean, looks even today, it's a very creepy, uh, ominous type of building. And seems abandoned. Yes. Well, almost like the reputation, it almost reflects the reputation of what Bellevue Psychiatric would have here in the 20th century. I mean, in 1936, the first doctor to use insulin shock therapy was here in this building. And that only just set the tone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this building, the reputation would inspire horror films, comic books, it had a dark reputation for, for psychiatric practices of a rather disturbing nature, I would say. It was even in 1945, they allowed the filming of a, of a well-known book called The Lost Weekend. It was a Billy Wilder movie. It was the very first one that was allowed authorization to film here. That film won Best Picture in 1946, but it was about alcoholism. And so it painted a not-so-rosy picture of psychiatry at this particular time. Now, a lot of uh, famous people found them found their way into the halls of Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. People like William, Bur- William S. Burroughs, Eugene O'Neill, Allen Ginsberg... Norman Mailer was here when he, uh, one early morning, inconceivably stabbed his wife and showed up here. So real who's who of, of alcoholics and yeah, I mean, problem celebrities. And so then on top of that, that's just the, the sort of the lower floor. On the second floor was the prison ward for the mentally ill. Even as in 1980, it saw the likes of Mark David Chapman immediately after he had killed John Lennon. So by the 1960s and, and 1970s, people are really starting to take a look at uh, how we are treating uh, people with mental disabilities. There was innovations in drugs, of course, and treatment methods that were a little bit more humane. Um, there was attention to the rights of the mentally ill by this time as well. And very important to the story of Bellevue was actually something else that happened in the city in 1972. The infamous crackdown in Staten Island at Willowbrook State School, believe it or not, busted by 
Geraldo Rivera in a very notable, disturbing series. That brought a lot of attention to the plight of those afflicted with mental illness. To be fair to Bellevue, though, the problem is, is that as they had always done, it's almost like the worst cases were always sent there. So it's almost like the same way for infectious diseases just 100 years before. I want to read a quote from the New York Times in 1983. The Bellevue psychiatrists must try to serve all the disturbed people in New York, the jumpers who threatened to leap from the Empire State Building or the Brooklyn Bridge, the slashers who cut their wrists or chests, people who overdose on narcotics, drugs or alcohol, and people who run around without clothes or harass passengers at Grand Central Station. So it had so many responsibilities, and it was during this period when the city had no money. Right. And it was the city's public hospital. Right. So... Eventually, in 1984, the hospital closed and basically was incorporated into the rest of the hospital. It luckily shook its macabre reputation. And, you know, today it's Bellevue is a leader in a lot of safe psychiatric treatment. This building, this building that was still there, of course, but abandoned. In 1998, it became a homeless shelter. In fact, it was the city's biggest homeless shelter uh, when I checked in. 2010. So I'm not sure if it's still there and it's still well. The building the biggest, is, yeah. is certainly still there. It's it's kind of hard. I I crept around it today. It's sort of hard to get very close to it. So there were plans, believe it or not, to turn it into a luxury hotel. Right. Um, that fell through. I think that's probably a good idea. Now, just to wrap, but just to wrap up a little bit, sort of the modern history here of Bellevue. Like I said, there's. It's a, it's a renowned hospital today, and a lot of important innovations have come through here. Right. The, the Bellevue Hospital that is today at t- between 26th and 28th on the east side of First Avenue is an incredibly busy place. Mm-hmm. And that's just a couple blocks south of this building that you're describing that became the homeless shelter. Yes. Mm-hmm. In 1985, uh, Bellevue actually opened the very first AIDS program that was uh, located in New York Public Hospital. That's a, that's a very early first responder. People, we were just learning about the causes and you know, how it was being transmitted back there, uh, back at that time. Well, that's not really surprising that they would be the first public hospital to take them, given the hospital's history of taking on the neediest cases that you know, others didn't want. I mean, over 200 years of taking the infected, taking the mentally ill, and now during this very pivotal era, taking, taking patients who had this new and frightening disease in the 1980s. So finally, I want to take us up to just a past few months, because... Bellevue was, of course, recently in the news during uh, Hurricane Sandy, which, which occurred at the end of October in 2012. And certainly affected this entire neighborhood. Yeah, the interesting thing is they had, you know, there had been a hurricane just the year before that they had upgraded their basement pumps and tanks for, and they thought that they would be prepared for this. But Sandy was a very large storm. And so what happened is it ended up flooding the building and they had to evacuate, in fact, for almost a whole month, evacuating patients to other local hospitals during this period where the, you know, the streets were flooded and it was crisis time here in New York. And you're talking about evacuating a huge hospital Without the use of elevators? Right, the elevators were shut down. With emergency lights in place, evacuating maternity wards, evacuating emergency rooms. A horrible situation that the, that the hospital miraculously pushed through. So, and, it, and it just reopened in February, so it's back to full duty. 
on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, I will find a lot of great old pictures and even sort of uh, woodcuts and illustrations yes. because this t- goes back so far um, so far in the past um, that sort of will illustrate some of the things that we've talked about here. Thank you for listening to our show here on Bellevue Hospital. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at my handle, BoweryBoys. And we have also launched an exciting new endeavor. We're sending out a weekly email called the Bowery Boys Five Points Weekend. This is an, a short email newsletter that goes out on Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday morning, just outlining some of the New York history-related events happening in the city this weekend. You can sign up for it. It's free, of course, at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Look for it in the upper right-hand side. I think you can even Google Bowery Boys Five Points Newsletter. It comes up, yes. It comes up. Sign up for it, and uh, we will see you around town. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.